I'd like to welcome those of you that are joining us online. We are so glad uh, that you're joining us for our presentation here today, as well as our friends at the Hangar in Montana. We're so glad uh, that you are with us today, as well as our friends at Arco, Idaho, and also uh, for those at Purpose Church Rancho Cucamonga. We are so glad uh, that you're joining us. Welcome, welcome, and we're really glad that you're joining us as well. Now, today, we have a very uh, special opportunity. Mark Middleburg is just a legend uh, in Christianity. Uh, my, my goodness, the influence that he has had. He's a best-selling author. You can see more details on his biography there on page two in your program. Uh, he uh, came up with a book and the curriculum for becoming a contagious Christian, how to become a contagious Christian. This has been translated into 20 different languages. It has now been used to train one and a half million people all uh, around the world. And, and, and along with it, he is just, if you get to know him personally, he is just the most gracious, kind, and humble person. He just has one flaw, and that is he's from Denver, Colorado, and so he's very arrogant this week. You know, I mean, he's just a really humble guy, really sweet guy, but there is this touch of arrogance. And so I just want to remind him of a verse. Remember last week, uh, Mark, we had um, verses for each of the Super Bowl teams. There's a tradition we have here where we retch verses out of context and apply them to different teams. And so there are no Broncos in the Bible, but there are horses. And so this was the verse, and so this is one I would use to remind you of. uh, The horse is made ready for battle, but victory rests with the Lord. Okay, just remember that, Mark. Okay, I I came from God. That's not anything you guys earned. So the Bronco, it should say, the Bronco is made ready for the day of battle, but victory uh, rests with the Lord. By the way, how many of you are glad Peyton Manning got one last one? That was... uh, that was actually uh, pretty fun. But Mark, we're so glad uh, to have you here. And you know what we're going to do is I'm going to pray. We're going to receive our offering. By the way, if you're a visitor, don't feel pressured to give. You're our guest here today. We're just so honored that you're with us. So don't feel pressured to give. This is just a chance for uh, us as followers of Jesus. Jesus was a giver. And so he says those that follow him are givers. So we want to help people in need uh, here in the city of Pomona, in the Pomona Valley, different places all around the world. Our most recent project is for children in Thailand to meet their physical needs and their educational and spiritual needs as well. So that's what we're about because that's what Jesus was about, like helping people in need, but also to proclaim his name. Uh, because we believe uh, in him, and we believe he was who he claimed to be. And we're going to see evidence uh, for that here uh, presented. And so because of that, uh, we want to proclaim that name here in our city, our valley, uh, across our nation, and different places all around the the world as well. So Callie's going to come and sing a song, and then Mark's just going to come right up after that. But you know what? I I just am so glad that he was willing to come uh, to be with us today. And I just want to show our appreciation. He's not coming up until just a couple of minutes, but could you give a warm Pomona, uh, a warm Purpose Church welcome to Mark Middleburg? We are so, so glad uh, that you're with us here today. Okay, let's, let's pray together. Lord, uh, as we uh, uh, prepare to hear what you've put on Mark's uh, heart to share with us and the evidences that where we can be confident in the truthfulness of Christianity, uh, Lord, I pray that our hearts will be open um, for, to encourage those of us that do believe in you, Lord. I pray that this will be a great encouragement. But then, Lord, I'm just so thankful for anybody that's seeking after you, that's like, wants to know, is this thing more than just a fairy tale that people made up to make themselves feel better? Is there actual evidence for this? I thought it was all about faith and just 
believing something, and whether it's true or not, just something to hang on to in a hard world. Uh, Lord, is this a fairy tale, or isn't there actual evidence for it? And so I'm, I'm so grateful for those that are here just kind of seeking for answers. Maybe they're joining us online, the hundreds that join us online every, every weekend, Lord. Um, uh, maybe somebody in Montana or Idaho or in Rancho Cucamonga that's joining us as well. Lord, we just really want to be open-minded to whatever evidence you might present to us. And so, Lord, I pray that we'd be able to hear uh, what he's sharing with us and that my heart would be open and that we would even be encouraged in the things that we already believe or we would be encouraged to maybe open ourselves up to maybe, just maybe, this is something that has evidence behind it. So we commit this time to you now and I pray each person here, whatever they most need, Lord, whatever they're going through, whatever they're discouraged by, whatever they're worried by, whatever keeps them awake at night, I pray that you would encourage them. And most of all, Lord, I pray that they would be encouraged by the evidence of Jesus was who he claimed to be that we'll be talking about here today. So we commit this time to you now, and we pray it in Jesus' name, and all God's family said, amen. Well, good morning. It is so good to be back. I was here for a couple of days for the AMP conference, and just feel so at home. Just It's such a great church, and you guys have been so uh, encouraging, and your pastor, what an encourager, huh? Uh, so I just really have enjoyed being here already, and I was also very encouraged by that verse you put up, because if I'm reading that right, it says the Lord is on the side of the Denver Broncos. So going forward into the future, that's going to be great, especially if L.A. ever gets a team. So good, good, good to know. By the way, happy Valentine's Day. Um, you know, Pastor Glenn and I were talking about, we thought, what better way to say romance and I love you and all that than, than to talk about philosophy and history and science and uh, all the stuff I'm going to talk about. So uh, it, is, it does lead to the greatest love story in history of God's love for us. But um, happy Valentine's Day. I guess you'll save the romance for a little later while I go into evidence for Christianity. Um, but I really am excited about what I'm going to talk about today because uh, I'm talking about reasons that we can be confident that Christianity is true. Um, my goal is not to produce cocky Christians who are arrogant, um, even about their football teams, um, but Christians who are confident because I'm fully convinced, and I hope by the time I'm done, if not already, that you're convinced with me, truth points in our direction. You know, what we believe is based on good evidence and logic and, as I say, science and philosophy and history and so on. And this is not some blind leap of faith, although a lot of people think it is. A lot of people think faith is believing something even though there's no evidence. Well, I don't know anyone who believes that way. Faith is trust based on good reasons and good evidence and I want to lay some of those out for you. And I think this is so important because our world has really changed, hasn't it? Uh, a few years ago, a bunch of the atheists over in England got together and they decided to kind of inform and, and correct all of us deluded religious types, uh, at least the ones over in England. So they realized, you know, they've got those big buses in uh, London. Why don't we buy a bunch of signs, they thought, and put signs on the sides of the buses and really fill people in on the truth. So they did. I want to show you a picture of what those looked like. 
says there's probably no God. That's generous, isn't it? They didn't say absolutely no God, but probably. Um, And then they said, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. From our good friends that, you know, support reason, supposedly. So I saw that, you know, I thought, well, that's, that's over in England, that's Europe, that's, you know, they're more secular over there. You know, it's not the way it is here, is it? And I, around that time I was moving, I used to live in Southern California, I moved to um, just kind of halfway between Denver and Colorado Springs, and I kind of thought Colorado Springs was a Christian city, you know, because focus on the family is there, and Compassion International, and Navigators, and Summit Ministries, and it's all these great ministries. And then I drive into town, and I see a billboard. Let me show you a picture of that. This is in Colorado Springs. You know, God is an imaginary friend. Choose reality. It'll be a lot better for all of us from your good friends at the Colorado Coalition of Reason. It's like, thank you very much for that. That's what they think. They think they've got reason and we've got religion. Well, I beg to differ. And what I want to do now is show you uh, 20 reasons. By the way, I'm sure your pastor gives a lot of good three-part sermons. And you enjoy those, maybe occasionally a good four-part sermon. Well, if a four-part sermon is good, what would a 20-part sermon? And that would be awesome, wouldn't it? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to click through these pretty quickly. I am going to spend more time, in case you're keeping track, I'm going to spend a little more time on the first few arguments uh, because they're more related to science and things that a lot of us aren't quite as familiar with. And then I'll click through the other ones more quickly. Uh, I, I will mention, go, go to the next slide. These are the books I brought. And uh, by the way, talking about football, this is my offense on the left and my defense on the right. But these are books that I hope you'll utilize and and read because they'll give you a lot more information. The talk I'm about to do is based on the book on the left. In fact, those red arrows are going to look familiar up here on the chart really quickly. But each arrow represents an argument for Christianity. But I'm going to go fast, and to really get the details, I'd encourage you to pick up the book, and especially for young people whose faith is so under attack these days. And then the one on the right, I addressed 10 of the top questions that Christians, according to a survey we did, that we as Christians are afraid of. So I go through the top 10 questions on that. So those are available, and I'll be out there afterwards. But let's dive in. Each argument is going to be represented by a red arrow on the chart. And so let me put an arrow up, and we'll go right into the first argument, which says, design in the universe points to or indicates that there exists an intelligent designer. Now this is kind of the classic argument. You've probably heard it before. It goes back to a guy named William Paley back in the 1800s. He said, you know, if you're walking along a path and you notice something on the path and you pick it up and it's a watch, you realize that watch has design. Watches don't happen by accident. You don't, you don't pick up a watch and go, praise the cosmos. You know, look what time and chance accidentally through together. You, you know right away when you see a watch, someone made this watch. Watches need watchmakers. So because there's design in them. But here's what a friend of mine says, Cliff Connectly says, look at your watch if you have one on. That watch needs a watchmaker, but look from the wristwatch over to the wrist. Did you know that your wrist has far more complexity than any watch? 
So if watches need watchmakers, wrists need wrist makers. And then we could take it a step further, get out a microscope and, and magnify your wrist and look at one cell on your wrist or anywhere in your body, and guess what? That cell has far more complexity. Uh, one scientist, a non-Christian scientist, Dr. Michael Denton, said, you know, if you magnified it a thousand million times, it would be like a big spaceship full of millions of portholes and openings and things moving in and out and all this complex, bewildering design. He said the cell is far more complex than anything humans have ever invented. And he's not even a Christian. He says, and I'm supposed to believe this happened by chance? It makes me think of the title of a friend of mine's book, and I think it's a good title. He said, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. You know, to believe, you know, the, the evidence points one way, and you're asking me to believe something out here? I don't have that kind of faith. So design points to an intelligent designer. But let me go to the second argument, which is kind of that one on steroids. It's, it's related. This one says fine-tuning in the universe points to an intelligent or an intentional fine-tuner. And by the way, I think, is there notes in the thing where they can fill that in? So if you want to write these down, you can fill those in on your, in your bulletin. But uh, fine-tuning points to a fine-tuner. What are we talking about fine-tuning? What we're talking about is, again, this first one was about design. This is fine-tuned design. This is specific design where a bunch of factors in the universe were pre- precisely fine-tuned to a razor's edge of precision right where they needed to be so life could exist. And I'm talking right on the edge. I mean, it's like a fraction this way and we're, we burn up and a fraction the other way and we freeze. Um, and there's like at least 50 of these. Scientists keep finding more and more, but let's just use a number of 50. It's like 50 huge dials in the sky, each perfectly dialed in so that we can be here and think about it, talk about it. And if, I mean, you bump one of those with the elbow, we're toast or, or we're frozen. Uh, and this has to do with the composition of the atmosphere and the tilt of the earth and the weight of gravity and all these different areas that had to be just so, and they are. And the question is, how'd they get that way? And even the secular um, cosmologist, Fred Hoyle, the guy that named the Big Bang, I mean, a big secular scientist, he said, you know, when I look at this, it's like when I look at these dials, he goes, it's almost like someone was monkeying with the physics. And, you know, to which our response can be, you know, where there's monkeying going on, there's a monkeyer behind it. <laughs> These, monkeying doesn't happen by chance and on its own, especially when it's fine-tuned to a precise measure. So there's like 50 of these. So my buddy, Lee Strobel, he's my ministry partner and writing partner. He's the guy that wrote the book, The Case for Christ, that maybe you've seen. Highly recommend his books. He was doing his book on science called The Case for a Creator. And he interviewed an expert in this whole area, the second arrow, a guy named Dr. Robin Collins, who's just given his life to studying this stuff. And he said, you know, Bring it down to earth for me. Give me one example. And in fact, he's saying, let's look at one of these dials. Give me the example and tell me in real numbers or, or some kind of an analogy what those odds look like, you know, against it happening by chance. He said, okay, great. He said, let's talk about the cosmological constant, 
which I know you were all reading about in your devotions this morning. Um, the cosmological constant, which is the energy density of empty space. Okay? So people give their whole lives to studying the energy density of empty space. God bless them, huh? But anyway, he, Dr. Collins says, he says, well, there's really no way we can comprehend it. The fine-tuning has conservatively been estimated to be at least one part in a thousand million, billion, 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 billion. He said that would be a 10 followed by 53 zeros. So you understand we're saying the odds of just that one, the cosmological constant being dialed in to what it had to be so we could be alive, the odds of that happening by chance are 1 to 10 to the 53 power. By the way, by, Lee Strobel says, by comparison, that makes the lottery look like a sure bet. But then I love this. Dr. Collins goes on and he goes, let me give you an example. He said, be like you're in outer space and you have one dart and you have to throw that one dart at an arrow, excuse me, at a, at a target on earth. And get this, the target is one trillionth of a trillionth of an inch in diameter. So you're out in outer space, you get one dart, one throw, and your target's smaller than an atom. The chances of you hitting are 1 to 10 to the 53rd power. The same as this one dial being right where it is. And by the way, now we've got 49 more dials to talk about. See why I say I don't have enough faith to think that happened by chance? This is powerful evidence pointing to the fact that someone cared a lot to make things just so, just right, so we could be here and live and talk about it. Let me go on to the third arrow. It says, information in, encoded in the DNA indicates that there's a divine encoder. And I don't know how much you've studied this. I, I'm a novice at it, but it's fascinating. There is information in every one of our cells in the strands of DNA. It's, it's like there's encoding with this vast amount of information. And before I really give you the description of this, let me give you a comparison. Uh, you know, we walked earlier and found that watch on the path. Now we're going to go to the beach, okay? Let's say you go out to the beach. Maybe you're out there early this morning, and you go out real early before the, you know, people walk along and kind of mess things up, and you see where the wind and waves have been making, you know, marks, and you see a kind of a beautiful pattern in the sand. You say, well... Nature can kind of account for patterns. You know, that, it's pretty, but that, nature does that. But then you walk a little further and you see a heart shape in the sand with an arrow going through it. Then you look a little closer and inside it says, Happy Valentine's Day. And it says, John loves Mary. And you say, wow, the wind and waves were so creative last night. <laughs> right? Is that what you say? No, you say... I think there's a, an intelligence. I think wherever there's a message, there's a messenger. Wherever there's code, there's an encoder. You know, there's something, someone behind this. It may not be great intelligence, maybe just a lot of wishful thinking, you know, but a person, a mind had to give that message. That's information. Now, if that little information needs a mind behind it, now let me tell you about the information in every one of the cells of every one of our bodies. You may remember hearing about the Human Genome Project. Went for many years, you know, many millions of dollars spent with a bunch of really smart scientists 
trying to tackle this monumental task of mapping out the complete human genome sequence. And they finally succeeded. It was when um, Clinton was president. And so Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton did a press conference together with Dr. Francis Collins, the head of that whole project. And they declared, we've, we've mapped out the human genetic code. And it was interesting. A phrase was used. I think it was Clinton that said, uh, they found the language with which God created life. Quite a statement. But it was a good statement. In fact, later... Francis Collins wrote a book called The Language of God. And in that, I want to read you one paragraph. He describes the information in every one of our cells. He says, this newly revealed text, it's an interesting word, text, was three billion letters long, written in a strange and cryptographic four-letter code. Such is the amazing complexity of the information carried within each cell of the human body that a live reading of that code at the rate of three letters per second, you're getting this, you're going to read the information in one of your cells, guess how long it's going to take you? 31 years. Longer than some of you have been alive to read the information in one cell. And by the way, that's without sleeping. That's without coffee breaks, bathroom breaks, Krispy Kremes, any of that. 31 years! This isn't John Loves Mary. This is 31 years of information. And then you're going to love this. He said, and by the way, if you want to print it out on your computer printer with standard paper and standard size font and all that, guess how high the book would be when you print out your genetic code from one cell in your body? According to Dr. Francis Collins, it would be the height of the Washington Monument, which is 550 feet high, which is 55 stories. So the information in one of your cells would be a book that's 55 stories high. So here's my question. If John Loves Mary requires a mind, what kind of mind-blowing mind are we talking about that writes information into every cell of your body that's three billion letters long in a strange and cryptographic four-letter code that printed out is 55 stories high and takes 31 years to read? This is a super mind. It's almost godlike, don't you think? I think so. Let me go on to the fourth one. And for those that don't like science, this is my last science one here. So <laughs> for those of you who love it, you're loving it, right? But uh, here's this one's based on the origins of the universe. In fact, the way we say it is the uh, origins of the universe show that there was a divine originator, something behind it. I like the way Dr. William Lane Craig explains this. Dr. William Lane Craig, if you were here at the conference this weekend, we talked about him a lot. He's probably the greatest living defender of Christianity on the planet, or at least one of the top three or four. I've actually hosted two debates by him. Uh, we did a debate back in Chicago that Lee Strobel and I hosted, and it was between a famous atheist and Bill Craig. We had almost... 8,000 people come to this thing live. It was on 117 radio stations, just like this big, you know, grand debate on the existence of God. And at the end, 97% said that the Christian won. Uh, he also debated Christopher Hitchens, the guy that wrote God is Not Great. He debated him over here at Biola University a few years ago when Hitchens was still alive and healthy. 
And a, an atheist blogger who was there at Biola that night went home and blogged about it. An honest atheist blogger who said, here's my assessment of the debate. William Lane Craig, the Christian, spanked Christopher Hitchens like a foolish child. That was the atheist perspective. So, I mean, this is, I mean, this is powerful information. And Dr. Craig uses it all around the world. And, uh, but let me just give you the way he presents it, and then I want to tell you one other story about him. Um, here's how he lays it out, and I'd encourage you to write this down because it's, it's a three-part argument. Uh, simple but powerful. The first part says this, whatever has a beginning has a cause. Whatever has a beginning has a cause. By the way, science is built on that premise, and what science does is looks at effects and looks for the cause behind them. Um, Einstein said the scientific mind is seized by a sense of universal causation. So whatever has a beginning has a cause. Second premise is the universe had a beginning. And you probably know this, almost universally in the scientific world, it's accepted that the universe began a long time ago in one grand explosion. And you've heard of it, it's called the Big Bang. And atheists, you know... Um, Stephen Hawking, you know, Richard Dawkins, I mean, they, they all believe in you know, variations, but basically that at one point, and here's what they're really saying, the entire physical universe, everything you see in time itself, all began, and before they began, they were in one singularity, they call it, which is an infinitesimal point that really isn't even physical. It's metaphysical. And then for unknown reasons, suddenly, boom, there's the universe. And they call it science. And I think it's a pretty good description of something theologians call God creating the heavens and the earth, ex nihilo, out of nothing, boom. And a lot of Christians get nervous. They go, wait, I don't believe in any big bang. I believe God did it. I believe God. Well, do you think maybe it made some noise? You know, when God created, maybe it made a boom, you know? I like what J.P. Moreland at uh, Biola or Talbot says. He says, you know, wherever there's a big bang, there must be a big banger. <laughs> you know, it's the logic, though, that, that there's, there, there's, you know, there's uh, causes behind these effects. But let me finish the argument. Whatever, here it is again. Whatever has a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning. Most scientists believe it was in this event called the Big Bang that they can't explain. And they, the scientific categories can't even contain it. But they still believe it, which is good. But then the third point, or the conclusion of the argument is, therefore, the universe had a cause. Because whatever has a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning. Therefore, the universe had a cause. And then what, what do we know about that cause? Well, that, that cause wasn't part of the universe, therefore it was not physical. So think about this. If it's not physical, what's left? Yeah, I heard someone say, I, I would say probably spiritual then. And time itself came into existence with the Big Bang. So whatever this cause is, it's not bound by time. Isn't that interesting? It's eternal. Wow. And it had to be powerful enough to, in a fraction of a nanosecond, create the heavens and the earth. Uh, that's a lot of power. I, I'd almost call that omnipotence. 
And then it had the wisdom and the knowledge to tune in these 50 dials, dial them in, you know, fine-tune them precisely so that life can exist. And that all had to happen during that nanosecond when it was exploding. That's a lot of wisdom. Uh, you might even call it omniscience. And I think this being, you know, must have loved us a lot to not only make it so we can exist, but give us sunrises and sunsets and bouquets of roses and Valentine's Day and beauty and music. And I mean, I think this is an omnibenevolent being. You see what's happening here? Logic and science is pointing to a character suspiciously similar to someone you may have read about in the book of Genesis called Yahweh God, the God of the Bible. And a lot of people thought science was our enemy. Friends, science increasingly points the same direction that our faith does and that the Bible does. In fact, it's so powerful. I said Bill Craig, uh, William Lane Craig does these debates, and I, I hosted this one in Chicago. Well, a few years ago, he was going to do a tour of England. He was going to go to Oxford. And so the Christian said, you know, he's speaking all these different places. Why don't we set up the Clash of the Titans and have a debate between William Lane Craig and Richard Dawkins? You know that name? The atheist who, you know, is very adamant and, you know, pretty tough and smart guy, biologist, uh, teacher at Oxford, wrote the book The God Delusion. He's the guy that says we're, we might be mentally ill for believing in God. He's the guy that spoke at the Reason Rally and told all of his followers to ridicule us because we deserve it. Nice guy. Um, so they said, let's set up the debate between these two guys. It's, it's way overdue. What they didn't know is that Dawkins has steadfastly refused to debate Bill Craig. He'll debate bishops and pastors and actors and different people. Didn't want to debate a philosopher who he knows you know, it's going to be a challenge. And in fact, I love this. He gave another, he, he gives all these contradictory reasons why he won't debate William Lane Craig. There's now a website that keeps track of the contradictory reasons Dawkins won't debate Craig. There's now a dozen different reasons he's given. And it's to the point that, this was about three or four years ago, other atheists and bloggers and skeptical, you know, authors and so forth started saying, Dawkins is scared. He's like running from this guy, but he still refused. So what the Christians did is they said, well, Dr. Dawkins, he's coming to Oxford. This is where you teach. I think it'd be easy for you to like walk across the campus here. And we're going to put it in the Sheldonian Theater. And we're going to have two tables set up like a formal debate, you know, with tablecloths and the glass of water and the little microphone and stand and all that. And uh, we'll have a little sign that says Dr. Richard Dawkins and one that says William Lane Craig. And it's an open invitation. And he still refused. He said, if you don't come, he's just going to refute your book, which he did. Um, But anyway, they finally realized he's not coming. And then someone remembered those signs on the buses in London a few years earlier than that. You know, remember the there's probably no God? And they, you know, light bulb went on. They said, we could buy some signs. And they did. I got to say, I love this. Let's look at the sign. there's probably no Dawkins we're not sure but he seems to not exist Um, 
So stop worrying and enjoy us on October 25th at the Sheldonian Theater, and then they have the website. Isn't that great? By the way, you can go on YouTube and look it up, Dr. William Lane Craig at the Sheldonian, and watch his refutation of of, uh, Dawkins' book that he would not come and defend. So good stuff. And I'm just telling you, the evidence is just getting stronger and stronger. This is why I call my book Confident Faith. We have great reasons to believe. And in fact, i got 16 more, and I'm going to give them to you in about 20 minutes. So here we go. Uh, Number five, and we're going to move off of science now. Uh, This one's more kind of from logic and experience. It says, our sense of morality points to a moral lawgiver. Uh, Let me raise my right hand and confess something to you. In fact, I'll use my other hand, put it over my head. What this means is I've got a moral standard that I've had all my life that tells me right from wrong, and I I put it above my head because I never quite live up to it. I confess that to you. I have some good days where I do pretty well. I have some bad days I don't do so well. But here's what's so funny. When I talk about this, I find out everyone else seems to have that same deal. And the question is, why did we invent that thing? Why don't we, you know, it's a, a year of elections. Let's just vote it out of existence. Let's just get rid of it and have fun. Hang out at the beach or whatever, you know? The reason is, we can't get rid of it because we didn't invent it. It's woven into the fabric of what it means to be a human created in the image of God. And we all have that sense, that moral sense. It's evidence that there's a moral lawgiver who made us in his image. And that's, uh, that's the short version. If you want to read the longer version, read the section in C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. It's a powerful argument. And it, it, it's, it kind of shows the sense that God is, he's, he's like with us wherever we go, whatever, even in the dark, he's still there. So powerful evidence. Let me go on to number six, which gets to more familiar territory related to the Bible. Um, the Bible, by the way, I'm not going to tell you the Bible's true because it says it's true. That's what a lot of Christians have done over the years. How do you know the Bible's true? Well, it says right here. It's like, well, um, what else you got? Well, what else you need? It's the Bible. It's like, and this is just circular reasoning. So what I want to do is give you reasons outside the Bible or related to the Bible, but not just saying it says it's true, but, which, by the way, it does say it's true, and I think it is right, but let me give you some other evidence for why I think it's right. One is that the Bible is not one book, it's 66 books, written over multiple centuries from multiple continents by multiple authors in multiple languages, in multiple cultures, and yet has one message. I mean, a book written over 1,500 years, and it tells us about one true God who created us, and humans who messed up and rebelled against that God and went our own way, and the fact that we need a Savior, and the Savior's coming, and then he did come, and he lived with us and then died for us, and he left and he said, follow me, and I'll come back someday. That's the message of the Bible. And it's consistent from all these authors in all these languages and all these centuries. What it shows, it's powerful evidence that the Bible ultimately has not just a bunch of human authors, but a divine author that led all of them and spoke through them. And I think the more you read the Bible, the more compelling that argument will be. Because you begin to realize, you, you sense the voice of God speaking through it. Let me go on to number whatever, seven. The Bible's a uniquely historical religious book. Now, I know it's a cliche to say, oh, all the religions are the same. 
you know, they all believe the same thing. They all have the same kind of evidence or lack of evidence. Well, that's just baloney. People that say that have never studied any of them, generally speaking. They, they, or they don't believe in any of them. Because there's a big difference between what they say and what kind of evidence they present. And when it comes to history, most religions don't really offer any good history. Uh, I took a group of Christians on a tour of a Hindu temple. Uh, we had, there was a tour guide who was a Hindu you know, guy, nice guy. This was in Chicago. But when we walked in, he, he boasted to us. He said, by the way, before I take you there, and he was real excited about this. He goes, I just want to tell you, our religion is, is the oldest religion, he claimed. He said, our religion is so old, we don't know where it came from. I'm going, oh, wow, sign me up then. You know, it's like, it's like the waiter comes with the, you know, hey, have this. I don't know what it is. I don't know where it came from. Eat it. You know, it's like, really? I want to know where things come from before I consume them. And Hinduism, I mean, it's, it's largely a bunch of fanciful literature. It doesn't really have a date, time, and place. It's just sort of a story of Lord Krishna dancing around the lotus flower. And you're supposed to draw, you know, lessons out of it. But it's, not, it's more like Greek mythology. But then there's other religions that make historical claims and are just wrong. And I, I know I'm real politically incorrect to tell you this, but the Quran and the, and the uh, Muslim religion is wrong about Jesus. They make historical claims that are wrong. And just so you think, you know, I'm talking big here in the church. I, I told the, mosque, the, the uh, imam that at a mosque. Because that same day we went on the tour, we went in a mosque. And the, they were very nice. And uh, gave us a little tour and then had to sit down. But then the imam came up, and dressed in white, and sat on a stool. And he lectured. It was like 40 Christians. We had a busload of us. And he preached Islam to us. And included in that, he thought, I'm going to straighten you guys out. He said, by the way, God does not have a son. God is not divided. Well, that means there's no trinity. And Jesus is not the son of God. That, that's what he was saying. Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. He said, furthermore, God would never allow his prophet to suffer in the way you Christians think he did. In other words, Jesus did not die on the cross. And the Quran says you, they thought they killed him, but they didn't. It was someone else. Most Muslims believe it was someone else on the cross, not Jesus. And then he didn't have to say this, but if Jesus didn't die on the cross, then there's no resurrection. So there goes Good Friday, there goes Easter. I mean, he's going after all our holidays, man. I'm, I'm listening to this. And, uh, and then after he was done, he said, any questions? And uh, some of our group asked various questions, and I, I was kind of listening, thinking, we've got to get to the heart of this. And so finally, after a little while, I said, I've got to ask you a question, back to what you were saying about Jesus. I said, you said Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. You said he did not die on the cross. And you didn't say it, but you therefore don't believe in the resurrection, the Easter story. Of course not. I said, I want to know what historical basis you have for saying that. And before you answer, let me tell you my historical basis. I believe he repeatedly claimed to be the Son of God because the people who walked and talked with him for three years heard him say it over and over and over and over. And then they saw him die, and they knew it was him because they knew him. They were his friends. They knew what he looked like. And his mom was there. She would have known if it wasn't him. Um, 
So they saw it. They saw him die. They saw the spear go on his side. They saw him go into the tomb. And three days later, they saw and talked with and met with and ate with the risen Jesus. And he appeared in multiple places. That's what the people who were there believed and saw and experienced. And they wrote it down in historical documents. That's my historical evidence. What's yours? And then I did say this. I said, or do you believe it just because a guy in a cave 600 years later heard an angel say it wasn't true? Because that's what Islam is based on. 600 years later, 600 miles from where it all, where Jesus did his ministry, Muhammad sat in a cave and an angel told him none of that stuff's true. And I said, do you have any historical basis or just a guy talking to an angel? He said, actually he glared at me. And then he just said, I choose to believe the prophet Muhammad. And that was the end of Q&A. But I share that story with you to say he had no historical basis. And I've since had multiple conversations with many Muslims who are sincere, nice people, but they're believing something. By the way, Paul warned in Galatians 1, 8, and 9, even if an angel comes and gives you a different gospel, let him be accursed. Do not listen to a new gospel from an angel. So Mormons, you got to pay attention to that. Muslims, you got to pay attention to that. We have a historical faith based on people who saw it and wrote it down. Let me go on to the next one. The Bible's a uniquely preserved work of antiquity. I, I already implied that, but when they, these guys wrote it down, they didn't just write the originals, but then copies were made. And I don't know if you know this, but in ancient writing, we don't have the original copies of anything. And not just in, in Scripture. Any ancient writings, the original, they call them autographs, eventually fall apart and dissolve turned to dust. So they knew that in ancient times, so they would make copies. And the way we know if an ancient document is reliable is based on how many copies we have and how early and how good they are. But here's what a lot of people don't know. Most ancient literature is based on a handful of copies. And I, I want to give you a time scale here. It's like, here's the original writing. Uh, you know, let me give you a specific example. Plato. Here's the original writing of Plato. And then that turned to dust, but there were copies. The problem is, if this is a time scale across the front here, 100 years, 100 years, 100 years, 100 years, you don't have any copies of Plato till like seven or 800 years later. And we only have about eight copies. But historians say they're good copies, and we have reason to trust them. We think we got Plato. Fair enough, you got Plato. Other documents, they have maybe 20, but some of them are like a, you know, a whole thousand years out or 1,200 years out. Let me show you what we have with the New Testament. Here's the original writing, and then here's the earliest copy. Now see, some of you weren't watching closely enough. So I'm going to step back and do that again. Okay, ready? Let's start over. Ready? Original writing. Earliest copy. I'm not exaggerating. The, the New Testament was written in the first century, and most of it by 70 A.D. 
And John wrote the latest one. A lot of people think that was more like 90 AD, the Gospel of John. Guess what? There's a fragment of the Gospel of John that was found all the way over in Egypt. It's called the John Ryland's Papyri. It's a fragment. It's not, not a whole gospel, but it's, it's a substantial part of John 18. Found in Egypt, and it's dated about 35 years after, or 30 or 35 years after John wrote John. Not 800 years. 30 years. And by the way, there are scholars now studying, they, I don't know if you've heard this yet, Glenn, they think, they haven't proven it yet, they think they may have a fragment of the Gospel of Mark from the first century. So, I mean, this is like newsflash stuff. This is like right there. But what we have with the New Testament is the original writing and then copies, 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 copies. And it's not then a big gap. It's copies all the way through. And if you have eight copies of Plato, guess how many we have of the New Testament in Greek alone? Over 5,800. There's just no comparison. No ancient literature compares to the New Testament. If you can't believe the New Testament and, and see that it's reliable, you can't believe in any history. And in fact, it's so strong, one scholar said, when it comes to documentary evidence for the New Testament, we have, here's a quote, we have an embarrassment of riches. It's Dr. Daniel Wallace. Powerful stuff. And so when someone says, well, you can't trust the Bible, it's been retranslated, they don't know what they're talking about. And you just show them the evidence that we have overwhelming reasons to trust the Bible in general, and especially the New Testament. Reason nine. Archaeology shows the Bible to be a powerfully verified book. Wish we had time to go into this. I'll just tell you over and over, uh, skeptics have said, you know, the Bible's fiction. Uh, For instance, the Old Testament fiction talks about these people called the Hittites, but they never existed. We have no evidence for, for the Hittites. There's never been anything dug up about the, oops, they discover the Hittites. It's like, well, okay, all right, the Old Testament writers got lucky that time, but not this Jericho stuff. We don't believe in this, you know, and the wall fell down, and oops, here it is. Well, how'd these bricks get here? I don't know. Well, and then they're going, Sodom and Gomorrah, we don't believe in that. You know, that's, what is that, anti-gay literature? We don't believe in this. Oops, they find it. Sodom, they got it. And one archaeologist told me they're trying to figure out what this six-inch layer of ashes is in the record. Oops, the Bible's right. And then you go to the New Testament, and they say, well, Pilate never existed, this guy you see in all the, the plays and movies and things, you know, that was trying Jesus. We have no evidence. Pilate never, oops, and then they dig up a plaque with his name and the dates he served. Archaeology over and over and over supports the Bible in thousands of instances. It doesn't answer every question, but it keeps answering them regularly. And even just in the last month, there's been news about new things being found. And by the way, that doesn't happen with other religions. Book of Mormon makes a bunch of claims about a bunch of peoples in the Central Americas. There's no archaeological evidence for that. So we have you know, a great support. This arrow is a big one. Let's go on to number 10. The Bible's a uniquely honest religious book. Historians, when they're trying to figure out if something's true, one of the ways they know is something they call the criterion of embarrassment. And here's the way it works. If a a writer tells a story that includes embarrassing details about himself or his family, it's probably true. 
Because if you're making up fiction, you make yourself look good. But you don't have Noah drunk in the tent and David committing adultery and Solomon marrying a thousand women. and You don't have all that stuff. You don't have Judas betraying Jesus and Peter denying him. And yet, it's all in the Bible. Why? Because the Bible tells us the truth. Even when it's ugly. And it tells us the truth about us and about Jesus. So it's a good thing to know. But it's a true book and it has all the earmarks of a true book. Reason 11. Miracles substantiate the claims of the apostles, prophets, and Jesus. Here's just one thing on this. You know, the Bible records all kinds of miracles Jesus did. Here's what's interesting. Jesus was followed by these critics that were always trying to destroy him and discredit him, and yet they never argue with whether he did miracles. All they do is try to catch him on a technicality. You did it on the wrong day. It's like, well, all right, we'll argue about what days are appropriate for miracles, but you realize you just admitted it. And that's the way it is over and over. The critics didn't even deny. They knew they couldn't. He heals people in plain sight. He raises Lazarus from the dead. and Everyone knows. So they just try to say, you shouldn't do it on that day, you know, Sabbath day. That's a no-no. Well, you can argue about that, but Jesus did miracles. Reason 12, fulfilled prophecies. We could spend days on this one, but I'll just give you one. Isaiah 53 says that the coming Messiah, the way it describes it, is this man of sorrows would be pierced for our iniquities. Get that? Pierced for our iniquities. And right in L.A., years ago, some Christians were sharing their faith with people on the street. They meet a Jewish guy, and they show him Isaiah 53 and, and say, read this. He reads it, and they go, who's this about? And he's like, duh, it's about Jesus. They go, well, we agree. And they said, they said we agree, but who do you think wrote it? And this Jewish guy goes, um, Glenn Gunderson? <laughs> he didn't really say that, but he, it was like, you know, some, you know, some Christian author, right? Lee Strobel or, you know, Max Lucado, I don't know. They go, no, Isaiah, your prophet, wrote this in the Old Testament 700 years before the time of Christ. The guy you just admitted is talking about Jesus. And, by the way, it says he's pierced for our iniquities. This was hundreds of years before crucifixion had even been invented. Powerful evidence. By the way, that guy studied further, sought God, ended up becoming not just a Christian but a pastor. And you can read about it in The Case for Christ. Uh, Lee tells the story. But uh, fulfilled prophecies is powerful, powerful evidence. Jesus' sinless life showed that he was who he claimed to be, that he was the Son of God. You know, there's lots of religious leaders who live a lot of, you know, flawed lives. Even in the book of the Quran, over and over, Allah tells Muhammad to repent of his sins. Muhammad was a sinner. Joseph Smith was a sinner. We're all sinners. Jesus was sinless. Reason 14. Okay, this is a big arrow. Jesus' resurrection backed up all of his claims, being the Son of God to being you know, God in human flesh, uh, to being, having the credentials to listen to, to trust, um, and the evidence is overwhelming. Lee Strobel was an atheist who did not want to believe. 
His wife became a Christian. He said as an atheist, that was the worst possible news when his wife became a Christian. And he then set out to show her why she was wrong and, as, in his words, to get her out of that cult. Well, you know what happened. And again, this is in the case for Christ. He spent the next two years mostly studying about the evidence for or against the resurrection. And at the end of the two years, he said it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than it would to just become a Christian because the evidence points this way. And he just saw the empty tomb, the eyewitnesses, the early accounts, all these things pointed to the truth of the resurrection. So again, that's another book. I don't have his here, but uh, The Case for Christ lays it out. I I will tell you this. Do you see the movie God's Not Dead? The sequel is called God's Not Dead 2, creative, huh? Um, We call it God's Still Not Dead. Um, But anyway, it's coming out in April, and Lee Strobel makes an appearance in it as does J. Warner Wallace, who spoke at the AMP conference here yesterday. Uh, Those guys are both in. It's going to be a really strong movie in April, so just heads up on that. Reason number 15. The emergence of the church confirms its truth of its message. Why? Because the the church emerged, Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, in Jerusalem, the very city where Christ had been crucified a few weeks earlier, and here's the point. That could have never happened if he was still in the grave. They would have ruined this Pentecost party with a wheelbarrow and a dead Messiah. Like, here's your stinking corpse of a Messiah. The problem is they couldn't do that because he wasn't in the tomb because he had already risen and already partied with the disciples. You know, It just couldn't have happened in Jerusalem. But it did, and that's evidence that the miracle of the resurrection was true. Reason 16. The changed lives of the early skeptics affirmed the truth of Christianity. Here, just one question. How do you explain Paul? The greatest persecutor of the church all of a sudden becomes the greatest missionary for the church. I can't think of any reason for Paul to do what he did. I mean, to face whippings and beatings and stonings and, you know, shipwrecks. And ultimately he was beheaded in Rome. Why would he do that? I can only think of one reason. It's the one he gave. He saw the risen Christ. Powerful evidence. Reason 17. The willingness of the disciples to die for what they knew to be true is powerful evidence. They all knew whether they were telling the truth or not, and they all were willing to go to the grave and, and sometimes be tortured and, you know, most of them martyred for what they knew was true. And that's powerful evidence. Some people say, well, yeah, but, you know, Muslim terrorists die all the time. But they're not in a position to know if what they believe is true. They're doing it on a big hope. But the disciples knew, and they were willing to die. That's powerful evidence. Reason 18, the changed minds of modern skeptics. And there's so many stories, like Lee Strobel, like Josh McDowell, like Simon Greenleaf, all these brilliant people that when they look with an open mind, they reach a point of saying, i got to go with the evidence. And the evidence points to the truth of Christianity. Reason 19 is where you all come in, if you're a follower of Christ. Because it's, it's the testimonies all of us have of the ways God has intervened in our lives and, and works in our lives and leads us and blesses us and, and corrects us when we're on the wrong track. 
But and we could put a mic up and spend the, next, the rest of the day hearing your stories. And that's all good evidence for the truth of Christianity. And then finally, number 20 says, it's true because Jesus said so. And he had the credentials to know. You know what's so funny? Everyone likes Jesus. Muslims call him a prophet. A lot of Jewish people say he was a good teacher. I say, then listen to what he prophesied. Listen to what this good teacher taught. Let Jesus speak for himself. He said it's all true. And he backed it up with miracles and all these things we've been talking about, the resurrection and so forth. Let me end on this. Let me, let me have you look at this chart. I think there's a pattern forming here. What do you think? I think the evidence points somewhere, and I just want to take a wild guess that truth is somewhere in here. The preponderance of the evidence says, it is, by the way, I'll support your civil rights to believe something out here. I, I love America. I love freedom. I love tolerance. I, you know, if you want to believe that, I'll support your right. I might argue with you. I might ask you to show your evidence for that. But, and good luck, because, I mean, the evidence points here. But the question is, where does that evidence point? And a lot of people say, to the existence of God. And I say, yeah, that's partly, that's part of it. But I'd say a lot more. I'd say, ultimately, the evidence points to a God who came down and became one of us. And then who spread out his arms to die for every one of us. Good evidence, good philosophy, good science, good history points to the truth of Jesus Christ in the gospel. And like a good Baptist pastor, I have one more last point. I'm flying back to Denver today. And I just want to tell you, it's not enough for me to believe airplanes fly. You know, I, I, could, I could go to, the, I'm going over here to Ontario Airport. I could sit in the terminal and read books on aviation the rest of my life and never get home to Denver. It's not enough to believe your head and nod your head. A lot of people in church will look at this and go, yeah, 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 we know. That's like sitting in the terminal and never going home. You have to say, I know, and now I'm going to respond to what I know. I'm going to respond by climbing on board an airplane. That's how I get home. And all of us, and especially young people, it's not enough to nod your head and kind of go, yeah, I agree. You have to respond and climb on board with Jesus Christ. You have to say, I don't just believe he's the Savior of the world. You have to say, I want him to be my Savior. And that's something you can do today. And if you haven't done it, I urge you, trust in Jesus Christ. He is true. And he is right. And I've been following him since I was 19, and there's no better way to live. And again, you can be confident as a Christian. God bless.